When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we're talking rough grouse and labs with Fritz and Rick Heller. Welcome back to the show for episode number 110. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. I've been feeding the new pup Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, and she seems to be kind of growing like a weed, so it must be working, right? Strong, focused, ready for anything. 
That is a Yukonuba dog. And by CZ USA Shotguns, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind. We are narrowing it down to the final round of selections for the CZ USA Project Upland Shotgun Design Project. Stay tuned on that. You will see the final round of voting and selection very soon. For now, head over to cz-usa.com to check out all their shotguns. And by Dakota 283 Kennels, kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, simple, effective, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip, nothing less. Head over to dakota283.com, use the promo code PU10 to save 10% on your next kennel purchase from Dakota 283. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Dave M., Dave left us some comments, a review in his podcast app. For that, we thank him. Dave has already received a code for the audiobook Woodcock Shooting. Still got a couple of those left, and we, of course, have Project Upland t-shirts always. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review in your podcast app. We love those reviews. Subscribe to our podcast. Share the podcast. Send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. You can email Email me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, don't forget about the Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society membership drive going on this month. They've got limited time promotions. they got a huge giveaway that includes a whole bunch of stuff from all their corporate partners and sponsors, including a few Project Upland Magazine subscriptions. Head over to roughed.org to learn more. Take advantage of this limited time promotion for all new, renewing, past members of RGS and AWS. Fall is coming. Join the movement, and with that in mind, that leads us right into our com- that leads us right into our conversation today with two guys that have been big time supporters of Rough Girl Society, American Woodcock Society brothers Fritz and Rick Heller. Probably most predominantly known for their rough grouse hunting adventures in Michigan and across the upper Great Lakes with their string of Labrador retrievers. This conversation was an absolute blast. It was really fun to get Fritz and Rick both on the podcast. There was some brotherly love, some back and forth between those two. We were laughing. We were diving deep, talking rough grouse hunting, rough grouse cover. These two guys have spent a collective ton of time in the rough grouse woods chasing these birds. I've learned from them from my conversations with Rick and Fritz in the past, and I learned more from talking to them on this episode of the Project Up One podcast. If you want to learn more about finding, chasing, and pursuing rough grouse, you'll want to stay tuned into this conversation because we cover some really, really interesting stuff. And of course, we talk about their dogs, we talk a little hockey, and some other stuff too. All right, let's get into it. Let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast, Fritz and Rick Heller. We are rolling. Fritz and Rick Heller, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, yeah, likewise. You know, it's funny. Rick is one of the last guys that I outside of my like family members and maybe some friends here locally rick you're one of the last people i saw when i buzzed over there and <laughs> paid you paid you a visit on my way to talk to our mutual friend del whitman and that was that was in march i believe early march yeah right before we got uh shut down yeah i remember my long drive over to that area of michigan i was that was when i I really took a deep dive on the coronavirus and I was listening to a bunch of podcasts on my way there and like 
by the time I got home, I was like, okay, this is, this is coming. This is serious. We're, I'm not going to be going anywhere else for quite a while. Yeah, we've been, uh, you know, we've been pretty lucky overall for our kind of corner of the area. I don't know how it is over by you, but yeah, uh, you know, we've had our cases, but it hasn't, you know, we haven't been a hot spot either. I would say that's kind of been the same, same for us as well. I mean, I, as odd as it felt early on, we've, we've kind of found our stride as far as like the things you can and can't do. And I don't know, there's still a ton of uncertainty and it really makes me kind of long for fall even more. Although I've, I have been enjoying summer. How about you guys? Have you been, been at the cabin, lake fishing, that sort of thing? Yeah. Getting out as much as you can. I had, uh, my ACL repaired three weeks ago. So no kidding. Uh, I've been, uh, laid up and hopping around on crutches here for the last few weeks. So, uh, looking forward to getting off those and getting back into a exercise and a rehab routine so I can get ready for the fall. Is that the result of Fritz taking a cheap shot on you on the ice or no? No, it's the uh, result of my inability to skate properly. <laughs> oh man, that's brutal. What, was there a, was there a moment where you were where it went on you or was it just sort of long term deterioration? No, a few years ago I just caught an edge wrong and I rolled it over sideways and uh, rehabbed it back. It was still though you could always feel it was a little weak. And then uh, this past spring I slipped and kind of twisted it and heard some crunching and just figured it's time to be an adult and go have it looked at and you know get it taken care of if that's what needs to be done and. Uh, you know, they got in there and it was a little more extensive than they thought. So got it all fixed up. And, you know, the first question I asked though is, will I be able to hunt this fall? And doc said, shouldn't, shouldn't be much of a problem. So I, uh, I get to take the trail walks from, uh, for this season and Fritz is going to have to go in there and send me some birds. Yeah. Rick gets to take the trail walks and I get to play center for the first four months of, uh, beer, beer league because, you know, he's not available to play center. So, but. You know, to go back to your original question, yeah, we've been, I've been spending a lot of time at the cottage. Rick's been there uh, when he can be there. And uh, we've really had a nice stretch of weather since uh, the beginning of June, which has been nice. The last couple summers haven't been exactly classic northern Michigan summers. I'm really hoping, typically, when we get these hot summers, we tend to get a cooler, earlier start to fall. Uh, the last couple falls have been really warm at yeah. the beginning, and we've had cold, colder summers. So hopefully we're back to maybe more of a, nor- uh, a normal weather pattern. I do see uh, it seems like winter starts later and lasts longer, and summer starts later and lasts longer. So hopefully maybe we're getting back to a, a little bit more of a traditional weather pattern. But with the, the extremely high water, in the Great Lakes and, and inland, um, you know, I don't know what that's doing to our classic weather patterns. Yeah. In the last, about the last week or so, have you, have you guys had kind of those where we've started to actually dip down at night and had some cooler mornings actually? Cause it's, it's been that way over here and it's obviously a kind of a welcomed relief. Yeah, we have, I mean, maybe like 55 to 65 degrees in the morning yep. enough that I've actually started to think about when I'm going to put dogs in the woods. Yep. Same my, here. My, yeah. My summer conditioning program for my dogs is I motor across the lake and I tell them in, and then I motor back across the lake and they swim back to shore. And 
I used to be one of those guys that, you know, as soon as I could get in the woods, uh, when quiet season ended, I was in and I just, I just don't do it like I used to for a variety of reasons. Um, one, I don't want to be breaking up a bunch of really young broods yeah. and, and risk with flushing dogs, maybe catching one and two, it's really hot and buggy and three, Summer's really short here, and and as I get older, the more and more I enjoy summer. So um, I will start putting dogs in the woods here in a a couple weeks as much for scouting and conditioning as anything. Yeah, good deal. I I recall, I think maybe you had a video one time of of showing the dogs swimming across. Do they swim right alongside, or do you just just blaze back across and let them? No, I try and keep uh, uh, 50 yards ahead of them just to make sure no other boats are coming or anything. And, you know, but they're they're coming pretty hard. They're chasing, you know. Yeah. So it's great conditioning for them. Yeah, it's obviously low impact and really good endurance and conditioning. My dog gets a fair bit of time in the water when I'm at the cabin, I always, I always have to laugh. I, I know that in Michigan, it's a cottage, but in, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, it's a cabin. <laughs> right. And in the UP and in the UP, it's a camp. Oh yeah. There you go. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I love that. But yeah, there, there's, there's not many things I would say that probably rival water conditioning for, for bird dogs, especially, I mean, they seem to enjoy it. Obviously there's, there's a lot of pros to it, but that's good. So have you, have you been hearing anything? I know you haven't been in the woods yet or anything, nor have I. I, I will start this weekend, actually. We can start running on some of the local sharp tails over here, which kind of like you, Fritz, I, I used to get in the woods earlier, but now I prefer we have the opportunity to run on some sharp tails over here, and it's just, as you can imagine, a much more enjoyable thing to do. It's the, the <laughs> cover is much more open, and right. it's a lo- lot less buggy. So I, I enjoy that. But have you been hearing reports and stuff? uh on rough grouse related over in that area i i have a good buddy of ours is a hardcore public land deer hunter okay he hangs a lot of trail cams this time of the year and does a lot of that and he said numbers are up and then a, a few of the people that have been in the woods seem to think it's it's pretty good i've been hearing some pretty good reports i am yet to see a brood which doesn't completely concern me i really don't feel like i know what the the actual kind of nest success was the recruitment was until until they uh shuffle until the fall dispersal and then you start to get a real feel i mean you could be out there right now and if you miss that 50 yard path where there's a brood of birds in that piece of cover you're not you know you can go oh man we don't have any birds this summer yep so there was i i did see a roadkill bird the other day you know i'm 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 very optimistic very optimistic, optimistic, excuse me. For, I'll edit out those first two. Fits. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> for, for a good season. So, yeah, I, I've been talking about this on the past few episodes and I, I don't know that you guys have listened to all of them, but the, the positive reports are, they're stacking up and I always try to temper it just knowing, like knowing how we are. I mean, there's always that hopeful optimism, but it's, they're stacking up. I've seen, I've seen birds. I saw birds this spring when I was turkey hunting over by my cabin where just, again, really small sample size, but it was like interesting to see them there. And now I'm seeing, I'm hearing brood reports and I haven't been out a lot myself, but people that are. So I, I do believe that there is certainly reason to be optimistic. That's for sure. 
I yeah, agree. I mean, I, we've we've heard a number of people that are seeing birds on roads, and you know, it's that's that's a good thing. I mean, like you just said, I mean, and Fritz said, it's if it's a tough time of year. If you walk the wrong spot, you aren't going to see them. But yeah, boy, when you start seeing them, maybe in some places that you shouldn't, you know. And I know this time of year is tough for that, but boy, you start to see them in places where you look around a little bit and you say, why are they here? Yeah, that's that's usually a pretty telltale sign that we're going to have you know, some decent numbers that we had a good hatch that birds are having to push out of their typical habitat to, to, to make room. Yeah. You'll hear people talk about in the really big years, you find birds in that, in the quote unquote marginal habitat, you know, they spread into those areas, which is exactly what you're getting at there, Rick. Um, Fritz, was that earlier, was that last spring or this spring, I should say, where you had the, the drummer and the cabin cabin or the cottage driveway, I should say, was that this spring? Uh, that that was last spring. It was okay. actually that was actually at my house. Oh, it was okay. Yeah, that so that was at the uh, the end of my driveway at my home. I live in some big woods, but I can almost measure the cycle by the number of birds that fly into my garage windows at two hundred twenty five dollars a piece. Um, <laughs> in, yeah. in number of birds that kind of you know die at my house. I mean peak years, and I live about. I, I do not live in prime grouse woods. I live about a quarter mile from what I would call marginal grouse cover. Okay. You know, so there's birds that filter in and out of kind of what we call our neighborhood. But it was really cool to have that bird at the end of the driveway. And he was there for six weeks drumming on a snow pile. Yeah, that, yeah that's right. You know, that was the that was 2019, spring of 2019. The ice didn't come off our lakes really until May, which is the latest I can ever remember. And winter just held on and held on and held on. So it, it was a lot of fun to have him there. He was not, he was not very, he wasn't very spooky. I mean, I could sit and park the car and watch him right. 15 yards from him. So, and we did finally see one hen show up about, I think, the third week of May. He pulled one in. Yep, and then <laughs> and then we saw the hen for like three days, and then we never saw her again. You know, going going to watch them in the car is a lot nicer than setting up a pop up blind and <laughs> try, try, trying to find a drumming log and sit there for a few hours and hope one walks out. Right. He was he was popular viewing. Yeah. So, <laughs> and you know, he was he was drumming on his snow pile. Right. That was interesting. I mean, I know Jim McCann has talked about that, and obviously they do it, but that was kind of the, one of the unique things about it. What do you think, Rick? A hundred yards from my dog kennels? Oh, not even. Six, not sixty even? yards. Seventy-five yards. Man. Sixty yards yeah. from the outdoor kennels. So, <laughs> wow. Well, since we're kind of on this, we'll, we're going to transition a little bit here. But taking into consideration, we talked about kind of things this summer. We're, we're optimistic. How was? Because over here, we had a really, what I would consider, in just my general observation, a very good winter for grouse. A lot of snow, a lot of fluffy snow. It wasn't really cold. It was a great winter for grouse, and I think the survival was good. How about over there? Fritz and I were talking about this the other day, actually, about how it wasn't what we would consider a typical great winter for grouse. Um, We did. It was warmer, which is good, but we didn't get... It wasn't the consistent fluffy snow. We would get warm ups and then it would freeze and warm ups and then it would freeze. Um, we had plenty of snow when we needed it, but we also mentioned, and I talked to Fritz and said, there seems to be a pattern 
where sometimes those winters seem to turn out really good for the birds. Even if the roosting snow isn't where we would exactly like it, like you just said, those little bit warmer temps, a mm-hmm. um, little bit more access to um, food later in the later into the fall, into the early winter, um, to get them ready to go through those cold stretches. Um, sometimes they just seem to turn out and really provide good carryover for birds into the spring. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would rather have it where we have really good, deep, fluffy snow, or we have just a consistently little warmer winter, which is what we had. We didn't have, yeah. you know, we didn't get any winter rains. We didn't get any of that. We got some warm-ups, but I don't think we really had crust over snow until maybe mid-March. We didn't have a ton of snow like we have had the previous five winters with maybe one rainy kind of winter in there. But it, it just, you know, what I don't want is is rain in the winter, you yeah. know, and, and, and or like 52 degrees in February one day, you know, and then right back to cold. We just had, we kind of had pretty consistent temperatures of, you know, right around 28 degrees for highs and into the teens for lows, but it, 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 you know, we had enough snow. Yep. So, yeah, I would echo that. I think, I mean, again, just observation, but the generally warmer temperatures and we got hit with a lot of snow early and then we didn't get a ton of snow until kind of later on, but didn't have those cold snaps, you know, the real sub-zero stuff for extended periods of time. So I, I just think those are working in tandem and that might kind of lend itself to, the reason we're kind of hearing a, a good number of positive reports really across the regions um, that we're talking about, I guess. Yeah, that that nest was pretty consistent too. Yep, yeah, we had a real dry spring. How about you guys? Yeah, Same. we had some heavy rains early, but then it, you know, we got rains when we needed it too. Yeah, you know, it dried up and we got rains when we needed it, and nothing, no cold temps and rain. You know, pretty pretty warm and consistent. There was only one day after June 1st that I got a little concerned. And I think the low was like 55 or 60. It was it was a pretty heavy rain for three hours. And then it was good and windy and, and warm the next day. So overall, I, I'd, give the, I'd give the nesting season, I don't know, Rick, a B plus or an A minus maybe? Yeah, I mean, we, I think it's the best I've seen in in, in quite a while. Right, yeah, since, I, I, since 2014, I think it was the best kind of consistent weather pattern. Just in case, I, I may have skipped over this, but just in case folks don't know exactly where you guys are, Rick, tell them, tell them where you're generally located over there. Well, we're in the northwest corner of the Lower Peninsula, um, up by the Traverse City area. We both live a little bit out uh, in the outskirts of town, yeah. um, surrounded by... A little bit of public land and uh, places for us to go roam. And fortunately, we're kind of in that zone where uh, you can put in some car time and and get to to new ter- new territory too. Yeah. You know, Fritz and I talk a lot about how it, sometimes that's the most enjoyable part of trips is even if the bird numbers aren't you know what they might be in some of your known home cover covers. They uh, it's getting out and putting your feet different places and uh, seeing where birds live in different different areas. Yeah, definitely. So I I got to bring this up since I got a couple hockey guys on the podcast. The Bulldogs, the Duluth Bulldogs, are not three-time national champions, which I feel like was kind of stolen from them with the cancellation of the college hockey season. But 
at least they get to be defending champs for three calendar years. <laughs> <laughs> so well, there, there you go. The uh, yeah, the uh, the Pee Wee Red North Stars lost in uh, overtime in district, so uh, <laughs> we didn't even get to go to states. So uh, oh. yeah, yeah, no, it was a great battle against the number three ranked team in the state, and we were up a goal inside a minute, and. Uh, you can't take penalties against the number three ranked team in the state. And we took a penalty and fought it off and fought it off. And then uh, the boys took another penalty with five minutes to go in overtime. And, and uh, yeah, so your, your Duluth Bulldogs uh, still defending national champions. And uh, we'll try and get the, the, the North Stars ready to go again this season, depending <laughs> on how, how much hockey we can play. We're just happy, Nick, that uh, Minnesota finally put together a winning hockey club. <laughs> hey guys, I I will I will take that one in stride and and know that my home team is the one. <laughs> uh, I remember that Fritz. I was kind of following along again. That was right back when when I basically came over and stopped in to see Rick, and it was right when things obviously took a turn for the worse, and it was uh, kind of a heartbreaking end of the season for you and the boys. Yeah, we didn't get to, you know, we just didn't get any closure, and we're not the only ones in sports right. or athletics that don't get any closure, but we had a really memorable season with a great group of kids and parents, and, and you know, I, I feel for them. We didn't have our team party until mid-July. Yeah. So, such is life. Let's go. Was that first year of Pee Wee's? So Harrison's got one more year? Yeah, one more year of Pee Wee's. Okay. Rick, how, you have one or two kids? I got one little boy, six years old. He's six. All right, so yeah. he's on skates. He's got to be. Uh, he's been skating. He's, you know, uh, I might get ridiculed for this, but he's a touch <laughs> soft uh, uh, when it comes sometimes to, to new things that he uh, thinks he, I mean, he's a tough kid, but he's a little soft when it comes to new things like riding bikes and getting the skates on and stuff. But uh, we've actually had a little breakthrough the past few days because of my knee injury. And uh, so I told him that I'll be back on the wheels before he is. And so if uh, he's got he's got some competitive spirit, so he's telling me that that's not going to happen. So we're uh, we're working on getting the gear gear on him so I can shoot him with Nerf guns and toughen him up a little bit. Well, you know it's interesting because I my son he's two and a half. He hasn't been on skates yet, and I would say he's he he might be a little bit like your son, Rick. He's he likes new things and he takes to them, but it's sometimes it's at his own pace. And we've, we've seen that with uh, his Strider bike and everything. Any tips for getting the little guys on skates? Yeah. <laughs> Fritz will tell you, just throw them out there, let them cry and walk yeah, away. Exactly. <laughs> you can't go on the ice, right? Okay. You got to put him in skates when he's like three and a half years old and take him to snowplow Sam or, you know, whatever it is and, and, and put him out there and, and let them go, and then you got to just keep taking them. Just keep taking them and taking them and taking them. I mean, Harrison, my my 12-year-old, is anything but soft on the ice to a freaking fault. But he's not real coordinated either, so you win some <laughs> battles and you lose some. But no, it's, it's like a puppy, right? You just keep taking them and taking exposure. them and taking them. Exposure, socialization, all that. And that's, and that's what worked for Marsh was, is finally just putting them on the ice in a class and letting somebody else deal with his attitude a little bit and you know he, he pushed through it but also you know going to watch Fritz coach going to watch Harrison yeah. play you know being in the rink having him come watch our men's leagues game he loves that environment of being with the boys in the locker room and you know so just trying to filter in a lot more than what it really is because let's be honest it's not just about being on the ice and skating it's about 
you know, being with the boys, it's about having that camaraderie too. Yeah. I'm in Duluth, so I've got a hockey rink right down the street, so that should help me uh, as far as uh, getting the little guy over there every day, uh, the rink Glen Avon. So I think this winter we're going to try it. We'll see how it goes. I don't know what's going to happen. but There you go. We'll give it a shot. But, Rick, I do want to I want to hear from you. We're going to transition, and I had Fritz on here before. We talked about the background, and I recall, I recall hearing notes of your guy's dad, kind of led you into this stuff but i want to get i want to get your perspective rick on kind of how you were pulled either dove into or were pulled into upland hunting yeah well i mean i had uh you know a similar upbringing obviously to fritz in the sense i mean we're six years apart five and a half years apart so a little bit different but um you know we always had had labs growing up my dad was always a pretty hardcore i don't want to say hardcore but you know he loved pheasant hunting um, and he utilized his, his, you know, his dogs for that. And I can remember one thing that I didn't get to do as a kid was my dad would go put and take pheasant hunting. And I remember him, Fritz was old enough that he got to go and I wasn't. Um, so Fritz would get to go walk along and I would just be there uh, waiting for him to come home, waiting, waiting for him to bring a few birds home. And, uh, you know, I think that's what really sparked it inside us. And then I had a, a high school girlfriend whose dad had golden retrievers, and he was a, a, a bird hunter, preserves, had some private land with some wild pheasants on it, you know, down in the southern part of the state where uh, we grew up. And so he kind of sparked it just a little bit more as I was in my high school age because, you know, my dad had gotten to the point with us kids playing, two kids playing hockey, two daughters at dance, uh, golf, <laughs> everything else. The yep. bird hunting portion of things kind of dissipated as we we got older and busier as kids and a family. And then, uh, you know, Fritz obviously was a bit ahead of me and he, he went to college. I remember him taking our, one of our childhood labs to school with him to hunt pheasants on some property that, uh, his best friend had, uh, gained access to over by Grand Valley where we went to school. And, uh, I remember going over and, and hunting with him my senior year of high school. Uh, and then, when I got into college, it was like full bore. Fritz had started this path towards, you know, buying dogs. And yep. uh, then we heard about this crazy thing called the rough grouse, which, you know, <laughs> I'd never laid eyes on before. And I, I'll never forget. Uh, Fritz said, let's go, let's go up north. We're going to hunt for, for the day for these grouse. And he, we park outside these woods and I'm like, what are we doing here? <laughs> and, uh, we got birds, I got, you know, birds pouring out of trees and I'm like, I can't see them. I can't, you know, I, all I'm doing is hearing these things. And when I look back, the habitat that we were hunting, you know, we were, we were hunting closer to that southern line of where birds inhabit in the state and the cover wasn't, you know, what we would even probably look at today in terms of good habitat. Yeah. Uh, but there was a few birds rolling around and, you know, Fritz moved up north and I, him lucky because he shortened my learning curve a lot and um, yeah. he uh, was fortunate to have some time and uh, started scouting researching getting dogs um, expanding that portfolio and uh, just kind of went along and learned every weekend that I could get away from school and come up north and hunt and you know try and figure these fun birds out but you know the dog journey started obviously at a young age with labs but when we used to go down to our cousin's place and pheasant hunt fritz had his dog hildy at the time and my cousin dan had picked up a lab and i remember chasing these dogs across these crp fields and i'm in between these guys 
and I'm, I'm not getting any shooting. And I, I remember leaving from a trip and I said, I won't be back without a dog. <laughs> and, uh, so I actually got a, my old dog Deuce who passed away a couple of years ago. He, uh, came from the same litter that my cousin's dog came from. Uh, at that time, didn't know a whole lot about what you wanted in a, a bird dog. And he turned out to be, you know, pretty special. And we cut our teeth together on pheasant and grouse. And, you know, that was the, that was the beginning of the addiction. Yeah, that's awesome. Fritz, wasn't there a wasn't there a story about your dad or like a saying that he had like when you were pheasant hunting and then a rough grouse flushed and yeah I'll I'll never forget with, with my dad <laughs> and his hunting partner being north of of Lansing Michigan in the eighties and people talk about that super grouse peak you know in the late eighties or whatever mm-hmm. we had and we're pheasant hunting on this farm that they ha- our dad was a commodities broker. And so, you know, he knew a lot of farmers in a 90-mile radius. And we're up there, we're hunting pheasants, and they're moving some birds. And my dad's hunting partner had springers. But what they're really moving is every time we go into a woodlot or a hedgerow or something, there's grouse pouring out. And they're just like, grouse, grouse, grouse. And I'm like, why aren't you guys shooting those? And they're like, we're hunting pheasants. We're not hunting grouse. And I'm like, okay. You know, I've one time in my life I killed a wild Michigan ringneck and a and a rough grouse on, in the same same day. Actually, only in the same once walk. though. Only once. They just, I mean, where the re, where we really had access to good Michigan pheasant hunting before CRP went away, there weren't any grouse. I mean, it was it was far southern Michigan. Sure. And we had one farm in the middle of uh, kind of in the middle of the state, southern middle of the state, and. Rick took a shot at a grouse there one year, but we just didn't, you know, we, we didn't see him very often uh, when we were kind of pheasant hunting Michigan pretty hard. Well, so, we, you know, we, we, were, we were coming up to when the, they were pulling out any type of wood lines. Mm-hmm. Any, any type of brushy stuff was coming out of, of farms and ag land at that time. You know, they're, they're, they were taking all the fence rows out, which, you know, I mean, obviously those birds got to have somewhere to, to live yeah rick your comment about <clears throat> kind of fritz the scouting and and finding places i'm curious to hear from from fritz about it's like you know like i'm kind of lost in my own little world of like digital maps and scouting and satellite imagery which obviously we have great access to now but what was it like prior to i mean we're using using a plat book and a real early user of google earth or how did you go about finding places to hunt in early on I'm still not a huge Google Earth fan, to be honest with you. I don't okay. think anything can replace a map book that shows public lands in a tank of gas. Yeah. And so, uh, I, you know, I've told this story before, but when, when I first moved up north, uh, and st- I, when I had a job and not a career, I mean, that job turned into a career, but I didn't know what it was going to at the time. My wife was in residency, medical school and residency, and... She was working a lot, a lot, a lot of hours. We did not have kids, and I didn't have the financial means to like go play golf all the time. So I would, I would get home from work, and she wasn't on call or whatever, and I would just start driving. And I had, I had learned enough, starting to figure it out with Rick and our buddy Cush, and I would just start driving, and then I would look for birds. I mean, those year, those were the years I was in the woods sometimes hunting 75 days a year, but I was in the woods 150 days a year. Yeah. 
And so you just start to learn and learn and learn. And the funny story about this is, you know, Rick would get out of class on Thursday and we never took Friday classes so we could hunt and fish. And he would be up north and I would get text messages from him and our buddy Brad. Hey, we're, we're finding them here. We're finding them here in this stuff, this, this type of bush. I mean, this was before you could send a cell phone picture. Yeah. And we're not that old. And, I, and they're like, do you have any more spots like this? We got three. We got three there, and I would be like, um, "Yeah, drive over here, go there." Oh yeah, yeah, all right, great. And I'm sitting in the office while these guys are just running roughshod <laughs> on all the covers. You know, I mean, when Rick moved up north, he got handed 150 covers. What time of the year to hunt them? When? Why? And I remember Rick used to get frustrated. He'd be like, "Fred, you're the luckiest grouse hunter I've ever seen." And I was like, "No." <laughs> I just have more experience than you. And he'd be like, no, 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 no. Well, then Rick got even better at it than I did. And I like to think it's because I handed him a catalog of where to be, when, and why. And I and his dogs were every bit as good as mine's. And his hand-eye coordination's better than mine. So that just leads to, uh, you know, more success. But, man, I, those those are, that's why I still like going on the road. Yeah. Because explore right it's the go figure it out go find new spots and figure out how to hunt them and we're now getting to the point where they're cutting what were some of our best covers 20 years ago sure and so it's like all right well is is harrison and marsh going to have an opportunity to re-hunt these spots again it's pretty awesome that's cool yeah you know, my learning curve was obvious. You know, I, I get. I will say thank you because it was shortened by drastically but even today you know the the just driving to physically put your eyes on it. There is nothing better. And, you know, I always, a couple of years ago, what, four or five years ago when Marsh was a baby, he needed to nap. Just put him in a car seat, go for go for dirt road drives. You know, that was, I always knew what birds were going to be like in the summers because I was on the, you could, you know, you'd see birds out on the road and stuff because uh, we were just driving around looking at covers while he was sleeping. But, you know, like Fritz said, we got we go on our trips a lot with our, our buddies Brad and Eddie, and in the morning, they will bet how many times Fritz is going to turn the truck around in a day. <laughs> We're just looking at maps, you know, trying to find, yeah, yeah. you know, even using the technology, you know as well as we do, Nick, that you, until you go see it, yep. until you drive to it, it could be or it couldn't be. And so, you know, so many times you drive into these places down these dark, thin two tracks, and you get in there, and you're like, ah, crap, this isn't as good as we, we were hoping it would yep. be. Or you drive down there, and, and off in the distance, you see some daylight, right? Which means yep. a younger forest. And so then you keep going. The technology is amazing. The Onyx and Northwinds and Google Earth and all that is incredible. It'll get you to a spot. What it won't ever teach you is what's the ground cover in those spots, and what time of the year and what time of the day should you be in there? The only thing that'll teach you that is experience in, in, in hours and boots and gasoline. Because you can drive to a spot that looks amazing on Google Earth and you get there and there's no ground cover in the spot. There's no pine trees or ferns or, or hazel brush or there's no alder in it. And, and you just go, okay, you know, this isn't it. And, yep. and you move on down the road. Yeah, the trees are the right species, and they're the right age. But 
that's not the only component that you need to find grouse. Yeah. It even goes beyond that a little bit too. I mean, you can pull into those covers that have the perfect ground cover and you look at it and you say, this is everything. You still got to put boots and the dog in there and see if they're, you know, like Fritz said, see if there's the, the variables that are needed for birds to be correctly handled and shot at in those covers. Yeah. We all know if there's, you know, if there's not the right edges, if there's not the right components in those covers, the birds win more often than not. Yep. That's really the way that I, I frame it up. And I, I appreciate you guys kind of sentiment on that. Cause the, all the mapping and everything it, for me and like my analytical brain, like it gives me all kinds of objectives, like places to go check out. And it, it saves me from being maybe stuck out on a dirt road somewhere, like can't deciding what to do next. You know, I can look down and all right, I'm going to go check this pin out, but nothing but a walk through that cover is going to tell you it's going to connect the dots and, and pull everything together. And that's what they work in tandem. I mean, it's not, you can't replace one with the other. And obviously if all else fails, like boots on the ground is going to be, that's your go-to, you know? Absolutely. Uh, one thing you mentioned there, Rick, which I find quite interesting is, and Fritz has talked about this before, is the way that you guys read and analyze cover. I think it's, it's built in to, your dogs and the way you hunt, but you look for, you look at cover as far as shot opportunities and getting shots. And I've, I've started to think that way as well, but you guys have been talking about this for years and I'd be curious, talk about a little bit, like how you're looking at a a cover and maybe we'll get into like ideal habitat and stuff. But for now, what are the things that you're looking for from a hunting perspective when you dive into a cover? Rick, I'll talk about what we're looking for and then you can talk about how we go about it. So The first thing we're looking for is stem density, and that's not always one species of tree. The more diverse a cover is with the proper stem density, the further ahead we are. So the first thing we're looking for is stem density, then we're looking for ground cover component, and then what are the characteristics of the cover? Is there water in the cover? Uh, Is there lower spots, higher spots? How are the birds behaving? How do we start to pattern it? So once we kind of figure out what they're using that day, that time of the year, those weather conditions, and we find that type of stem density, Rick and I hunt a lot of non-saw habitat, which is just natural brush, natural woods, but it's still thick, right? It it might not be created by a clear cut or an alder shearing, but it's just nature you know maybe there's a lot of water growing down you know draining into a a bottom or something and there's just all different kinds of diversity dirty woods that's what we're looking for and then i'll I'll let rick when we pick a spot go ahead rick after we well you know it depends if we're if you're hunting by yourself or if you're if fritz and i are hunting together or somebody else um makes a big thing i mean our dogs aren't big working dogs i think they probably run a little bit more than your typical uh, flushing dog and cover a little bit more ground but our main focus once we've learned everything that Fritz said about a cover is trying to keep our dogs and ourselves in the best possible part of that cover or what we have deemed to be the best possible part of that cover where birds shouldn't have it um, a lot of times you know we talk a lot about edges we do focus a lot on edges but what a lot of people realize is there's a lot more edges than just the outside ring that goes around either up against the creek or up against the hardwoods. There's inside edges. There's edges all the runs. There's edges all throughout covers when you get to those variances in the cover. 
so really focused, you know, on, and like Fritz said, when we find these covers, we're trying to pick covers that match our dogs. So depending on what type of cover is going to depend on what dog we each may put down, that's going to be most beneficial in that cover. Um, and then figuring out how to work that cover in a way that Fritz puts it truly the best is how to keep birds on the ground until it's the right time to force them to fly when you have the best opportunity to shoot them. And whether that's pushing them to an edge or pushing them to an objective within the cover that's going to allow you the uh, space and the preparation you need to put yourself in position. Uh, a lot of lot that goes into that then is the escape route, you know, knowing or trying to know where birds want to go so that you can position yourself and the dog in the appropriate place to, to be successful when those birds do take flight. But it's something weird that, that you know, until you think about it, people don't really get is just what I said, like Fritz explains it great about keeping birds on the ground. If you can keep them on the ground, you can kill them. And that, you know, that's where a lot of the training that we do with our dogs and the ability to stop them and have them, you know, be under control when we need them to is, is ever so important to our success. Yeah. Fritz, you raise a really interesting point there. And Rick, you kind of, you alluded to it with, with your comment about edges, but I, I got to touch on that. It talked about, you know as well as I do that it's easy to in the research and the the information that's out there it's easy to get carried away with aspen cuts as far as you know go find an aspen cut and jump into it you really need to transition and, and think about edges which is also something that gets talked about a lot but that can be a little bit more of a gray area and those those edges within a cover are really important but as opposed to like the edge of a clear cut which is a great spot to be almost a better spot or one one that's more unique would be that spot that you were talking about Fritz where maybe you have it's mature canopy overhead maybe you've got an excess of water there or maybe you just have a unique break in the canopy where it's letting some extra sunlight come through and then you've got that stem density in a place that is not necessarily tied to a specific clear cut those are some of the best spots you can find absolutely like uh, last year was an acorn year in our area and so one of the patterns I had kind of figured out in late October, and it was an Aspen component to it, was the loggers would leave two or three big mature yep. oak trees, and the Aspens wouldn't grow up. So it's almost like you would walk to an opening. Well, once the leaves were down, those oak trees keep their leaves. I'd go into, a, I'd go into an Aspen clear cut that had oaks in it, and where were those birds? They were living where the, where the Aspen started, in the opening, in the inside, in the middle of this clear cut, they're living three oak trees. I can picture it right in my mind right now. And those birds are, I'm convinced that they sit on the edge of the stem density in the aspens and they run into that opening and they get a few acorns and they run back. Yep. And that's where those birds are living. Or if they are out there actively feeding for some reason and you come through at 3.30 in the afternoon, they run immediately to the edge. And then if I'm hunting with Rick... I've got Rick 20 yards into the aspen. I'm in I'm I'm working right into the oaks. Yep. And hopefully those birds are pinched between us. If I'm hunting alone, I'm doing a I'm not walking into the middle of that. I'm doing a circle hoping to push a bird across that opening. Sure. And yeah, a big giant oak tree might get in my way and I might not get a shot, but if it doesn't, I've got a pretty open look all of a sudden. Everything's about stem density. It doesn't have to be just aspen. I mean, obviously, we hunt a lot of linear cover with flushing dogs, 
We are also alder junkies. We are creek bottom junkies. Yeah. You know, we are we we hunt islands of brush certain times of the year where people would never walk out there. But when birds are shuffling or birds are moving from one stage of the season to another stage of the season, they have to have connected habitat somehow. And there might be an island of brush out in the middle of a, of a, of a just a natural field, or there might be a finger or it winds. It would be like hunting a, a creek bottom through a cornfield for pheasants, if you can picture this. And Rick and I will walk out there, and boy, the birds can be spooky some days out there. But... If you just stay the course, kill the ones you can kill, and don't worry about the rest, it's wild bird hunting. We we can we hunt. One day last year, Rick and I hunted the most beautiful cover you've ever seen. We come out of it. We start working down a maple whip edge, and then we start taking these maple whip fingers out into this just natural open field. And there's bird. There's there's just it's just every finger we take. We end up a mile and a half from the truck. Because every finger we take, we're moving a bird or two, or, you know, maybe that finger didn't have one. The next one has three. And we came back with just a pile of birds on that walk. And we left plenty for seed. You know, it's it's going along with Fritz, what Fritz said. I mean, one of my rules of thumb is once those leaves come down, hunt the green. You know, just like he said with the oaks, they hold their leaves. I mean, you walk through, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's aspen or alder or anything. You look up and you see a clump of green. That's it's extra cover, it's extra stem density, it's extra protection. And, you know, so you get in those dark gray days and you see a spot of green, it's it's kind of like a little light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, there's something to be said about, I mean, you have to be a little bit of an adventure seeker, which you guys kind of talked about. It just You're going to walk through some, some barren spots to find the really good ones. You're going to have some of those days where it ends up being a power walk through a section, but you just never know what you're going to find. You never know where those grouse are going to be on that particular day. I recall a day that my buddy Garrett and I were hunting northern Wisconsin and we kind of went up this hill and it was like you had some young stem density had some aspen in there looked pretty good didn't see anything that broke into a pretty big wide open hardwood maple stand and there were some there were some low areas with some cedars and we might have honestly turned around right then and there had a grouse not flushed right on the edge of it. So a grouse flushes, we went up, I think I missed it. I think Garrett killed that one actually. We kept walking through these maples and in the next hour, I bet we flushed 10 grouse in an area where you weren't, you would not have expected them to be, but they were, you know, you couldn't see them obviously, but the the cover was pretty barren, but for some reason they were in those maples and there was, I, whenever I find cedars, I kind of, I, I get over to those pretty quick because the grouse seemed to like those as well, but Grouse are where you find them. I mean, that's that's cliche, but it's true. Yeah, my guess is they were moving, Nick, from one piece of good cover to another, and that's sure. the, that was their corridor that they were moving it, through. It reminds me of a hunt that Fritz and I were on where we were hunting. Basically, it was a upside-down bowl, and the top of it had aspen and maple, and the outside edge of it was a winter cut from the year before. So, um, Okay. Leaves on aspens were starting or mostly starting to come down, but we know those young aspens hold those, you know, big leaves their first year. And I'm in this cover and I'm hearing birds and I'm hearing Fritz shoot. And he finally is like, you got to get out here. And I'm like, okay, I don't know why. And I come out there and he's like, <laughs> they're coming out of the eight month old aspen. Yeah. Six month old aspen. Just out of the right middle out. of these, you wow. know, it's like hunting pheasants. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> Only the walking's not as easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little, little trashy. Yeah. Oh man, that's good stuff. We could, we could go on and on about that, but I want to, I want to make sure we pull the dogs in here a little bit. Fritz, I know that you lost a dog earlier this year. So from, for me to you, sorry for your loss, man. Tell me a little bit about that dog. Oh, you know, she's, uh, maybe I'm not the best one to talk about her, but 15 and a half years old, we, we, we finally lost her and, uh, I will never, you know, they say you get one great one and it's hard at my age to say that that was my, my greatest one ever, but she just had a knack for it. She was wildly athletic and, and really confirmationally sound and she didn't have very many faults and she was, she was everything you could dream of as a pet and as a bird dog, and she had the uncanny ability to keep birds on the ground for a long time. And again, I got her when, you know, my wife was still in residency and, and we didn't have any kids. And, I, you know, if I had to just guesstimate, I'm thinking she had 3,500 grouse contacts in her life. Wow. Not to mention, you know, hunting birds in North Dakota and Iowa and South Dakota and Kansas and Minnesota yep. and all over the country, but she was, what made her special was she wasn't just a really good bird dog. She was just a really good pet. She wasn't a pain in the ass. Yeah. And Rick and I's dogs <laughs> can be pains in the ass. <laughs> I, I mean, so I, you know, I miss her dearly, but you know, to get 15 and a half years out of a lab, she gave us an amazing litter when we bred her to Rick's dog Jones. Okay. And you know, I we there was a time we ran the, the Michigan Rough Grouse Society fun trials. And say whatever you want about fun, when you put money on the line, you know, it becomes competitive. And, and Rick and I are certainly competitive people. Um, it's why we go to the rink every Sunday night to play beer league. And I used to come to the line with her, and there, I, there was no one that, I you know, it was going to take, there wasn't, nobody was beating me. You know, so we won two gun dog of the year titles. We finished runner up and, and the year we finished runner up was her single best run she's ever had, but judging subjective and, and there's two judges watching two dogs and, and they went a different direction and that's fine. That's the breaks of it. But you know, her daughter won two gun dog of the year titles. She was just a, a, a great animal and a great companion uh, in her later years to my wife and kids and I, yeah, I think the thing I'm most proud of is for 13 straight seasons in a row, I killed a grouse over opening day. And in That's her, awesome. her 14th season, you know, as they age, their heat tolerance starts to really dissipate. And Rick and I took her out in October, and that was her first, that was her opening day that year. And I killed a bird over her. We finished that cover, and then that was the end of her hunting career. That was the video that you posted, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. And she, you know, okay. you you could tell that she just, uh, you know, she was interested in everything, but she wasn't herself. You know, I hadn't conditioned her or anything, but yeah, you know, I still killed one over her that day, and and so fourteen straight kind of opening days for her, I killed a grouse over. Her. That's pretty. Uh, that'll awesome. never happen again over any of my dogs. She was Bella was Bella was the matriarch of the start of this. You know, Fritz had a dog before, but not one like Bella. And, you know, I think that that's, she's a big part of the reason that we got into kind of breeding them and trying to figure out what we wanted as a line because, 
boy, you looked at Bella and you said, I don't know if you can buy that. And if you can't buy it, you got to make it. Yeah. Rick, do you have a favorite story or two that comes to mind, thinking back on some of your hunts with Bella? Oh, a lot. She was pretty good at sending me cupcakes, so um, I, I, <laughs> I appreciate that. And You know, we got to spend, so I, I just, I, I got to see Bella from, you know, like Fritz said, not just in the woods, but, you know, across the country chasing all different kinds of birds. And, you know, I think that that's a unique thing. She just did it all in stride, like Fritz said. I mean, it's it's not just at home, it's you know, dogs that make your life easy on the road and don't cause you problems are, are, are part of being a great dog. But you know, Bella just, you know, you always knew when Fritz would say, when he had Bella on the ground and he'd say, I got a hot dog, you just knew that the bird was going to be handled correctly and that it was going to provide an opportunity given you did your part. That's cool. I've been around some dogs long enough now to, to know when you have that confidence in them you know it's like like anything else that confidence just goes a long way it kind of allows you to focus and and do your thing so i can i can absolutely see how a dog that's that was around for 14 years would instill that kind of confidence in a pair of hunters that's really cool she had so much exposure too i mean you know because of the stage of my life i was in and everything yep well now you got a new pup fritz How's, how's he doing? It's a he, right? No, it's a girl. Oh, it's another girl. I, okay. I'm not allowed to have uh, male dogs uh, due to the person I live with who I'm married to. <laughs> I might not either. <laughs> she, has a, she has a male dog, but somehow I'm not allowed to have them. Um, yeah. So, no, River's a female okay. um, and is out of fairly similar lines to what we have. But what really sold me on that breeding was... Uh, a couple of my friends have dogs out of this bitch, and I just confirmationally they turned out to be amazing. And it appears that this dog's going to turn out the same way. I've really relaxed in my puppy development. I mean, there's certain stages you got to get some things done. So I've got her bird intro and gun broke and okay. retrieving and bringing stuff to hand, but I'm just not in the full blown hurry I used to be. And some of that comes because I've got three dogs you know, still going strong ahead of her that I don't need to be in a hurry with her. Yep. But I, I was telling, I was telling a buddy the other day, I said, uh, you know, one thing that concerns me about this dog is she's not a spaz at seven and a half months old and she's just pretty calm. And then the last week she seems to become a spaz again. <laughs> and I think Rick says it best when he's like, puppies are assholes. I mean, we all love them. We love the promise of them, but man, Get me to that two and a half year old mark where we got things worked out and I'm a lot happier. <laughs> An example being is she's just so curious. She's just into everything, you yeah. know? And it just, it's like yesterday I set my beer on the tailgate. What's she do? Jumps up there and starts, you know, sniffing it and licking it and spills my beer all over Tipped the place. It over. <laughs> yeah, like the other dogs don't do that. Yeah. But we'll see what happens. I, I mean, I like. Everything about her so far, she's got really nice natural mouth manners, which is something that Rick and I love. I will put her through a force fetch program at some point. She seems to have a really nice work ethic, but she's got a little bit better off switch than maybe what I'm used to recently. You know, that said, man, she's, you know, she's got, she's just a puppy still. We'll, We'll find out this season, you know what happens. I was worried for a while she was going to be too big. I'm not too worried about that anymore. She's right about the same size as, as Rick and I's other dogs. 
she'll probably end up being just a hair bigger. But to be honest with you, Rick and I need a little size. And if, if she keeps the progression going and she turns out to be special at four or five years old, then we'll think about breeding her. We've got one of Bella's sons um, who's nine years old and is a dynamic bird dog that my dad owns. We have him collected. So at some point, we'd like to tie back into what we call the Jones-Bella line. And at some point, I would like to get back to breeding some dogs. But coaching hockey and Rick and I's careers are expanding across the state. And my kids are 10 and 12 years old. And, and carving out three months to have a litter is just not the easiest thing to do right now. But yeah. down the road, you know, this dog will be lining up where my kids will be in high school and we should have a little bit more time. We'll see. She's got a ton to prove before I, I ever even take her to get x-rayed. Sure. The words about a puppy could, could not hit closer to home for me. I, I've, I've obviously got a like about a 10-week-old puppy here. And the first couple of days I had her home, she was real calm. And you know it was two days, but I'm like, oh, man, she's, she's <laughs> nice and calm. But now now she's really kind of come into her own. She's, she started to annoy me pretty well the last few days. But, yeah, it just – reminded of all that stuff where it's like i put my beer there and hartley wouldn't tip that over but sure enough <laughs> rosal she'll get after that <laughs> just all those little things it's yeah absolutely it seems like this you know she's starting to feel her independence and stuff i'm working yeah. hard on collar conditioning right now and remote sit and you know trying to keep it fun for her but she's just still a giant puppy she's a 50 pound puppy i'd be curious to hear both of you guys talk about and Rick, we can start with you, but talk about the first season. And if we want to be specific to rough grouse hunting for this conversation, that's fine. But talk about the first season for one of your Flushing's dogs. What does it look like? What are you hoping to see slash accomplish? And what are your expectations really for that first season? Well, it depends a lot on their age to start with. I've been fortunate to have spring puppies for my last, well, I had a February puppies, my young one. And prior to that was... Uh, Stella, she was a May puppy. And so by then they're old enough to go into the woods. They're old enough to have been, you know, gun broke. Really, like Fritz said, I mean, I've totally tuned it back. It's all about fun. There is no rules. Uh, So really looking to see that exposure to try and create some independence, run them into birds, shoot woodcock over them. You know, the great thing about a flushing dog is if they don't handle them correct, you can still get a whole lot of benefit from killing birds. Um, well, you know, hunting dead, uh, retrieve work, all that stuff, but really there's, there's very few rules, um, which in my book, two puppies ago came back to bite me, uh, pretty hard. Um, (laughs) my Stella pup is four now and she's a really, really nice dog, but she's a, she's a Jones puppy, which is my old dog, my old stud. And I, it always, you know, we, Fritz and I had always talked and said, We'll never have a dog as hot as Jones. I mean, he just burns the fire a little deeper than anything. He's a hard-headed male who just wants to work, but he is pretty dynamic in a lot of aspects of what he does. And so I get Stella. She's, you know, five months old going into the beginning of the season. And I don't know anybody who's ever lost a lab lab before in the woods. And I lost her four or five times. Really? That season where she, because, and she is faster and runs hotter than her daddy does. And I never thought that we would see it. And Fritz will tell you, I'm 
putting check cords on her. I'm tying sticks and golf balls to the end of the check cord <laughs> to try and slow her down. And uh, she just, she's got a motor. In, uh, but she's also one of the nicest dogs around the house. She's one of those dogs that listens when you say something to her. Where most of my dogs look at me like, nah, I don't have a collar on and something smells pretty good over here. So I'll be there in a minute. <laughs> but uh, overall, really, just no rules. Let's let's get in the woods. Let's get with other dogs. Let's get with other people. Let's be put in different situations to allow them to grow and develop in you know, if we shoot some birds, we shoot some birds. But, you know, Fritz says it right. 50% of it, you're going to think you've got the next great dog. And 50% of it, you're going to be like, please get away from my heels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what I want to see, Nick, is just to, to echo what Rick said, is some work ethic. I want that dog to kind of learn what its job is and to start to figure out where birds live. We do not run our dogs in a classical windshield wiper quartering pattern. That they are they they don't yo-yo either. They don't go straight out and straight back. If they start doing that at six months old, then we start walking a zigzag ourselves. Just to be there and to let their minds open up without the control panel, so to speak, in my hands for that season. So if they find birds at 80 yards, great. They just learned to associate where that bird was living and 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 having an opportunity to find flush smell a bird. There's no real rules. And then it's that it's that spring and summer between that first season and the second season where we get real we, we get way more serious about us becoming a partnership. And that's when the more formal grouse dog training starts to happen. That's where we start to test them on remote whistle sit under pressure, you know, with a bird in front of their nose. And and we do it with some training birds and we do it with wild birds, but that's where we start to build it. I like to see possessive dogs, dogs that want something in their mouth all the time. And so if you if they can learn to associate that when we blow a remote sit whistle or we give an in command or or how to apply the wind, when they start to learn that and then they also learn how how it has how we have to come together at the bird at a similar time then when we learn that that's when that possessiveness of oh if i do this or i do this properly or i follow this command or i use my instincts in this way or i use the wind i get a bird in my mouth which is ultimately what they want yeah and so what I do like about this new pup and Rick and I talking about all the time is when they're 8 weeks old 10 weeks old 6 months old do they have, hang on, somebody's calling me. Jeez, <laughs> Pete's, Carrie's calling me. Uh, I lost my complete train of thought. Are saying, they carrying you, something? You and Rick talk about all the time. Oh, yeah. yeah, are they carrying something? You know, I had to go looking for one of my hunting boots in the woods behind my house the other day. <laughs> because she just picked it up and ran off with it. Yeah. You know, so that's what we want to see because that, tra- and it can be a pain in the butt. But it translates, it's a training tool for us. It's, it's a, a breeding instinct genetics that allows us to convince that dog that if they do what, what we ask and use their natural instincts, they get the reward of a bird in their mouth. No dog wants to sit remotely while they're trailing a rough grouse 
and then wait for us to catch up and get in the open. That, that goes against every natural instinct and everything we started to develop. But once they learn that if they do it and it's non-negotiable and they get a retrieve, then it all starts to click. That's cool. Are there any dynamics between running a young dog, the puppy that first year, running it with another dog? Do you want to never do that, always do that, or a little bit of both? I think a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think that they have to learn to hunt with other dogs. And, they, yeah. and, and part of that learning process is that we don't chase other dogs, that we stay in our zone. And, and, and some of that comes, like Fritz said a little bit later, is, is learning that we work as a team and learning that we're, we're out there together. Um, yeah. But you also have to have some independence. You, you can't have a dog that is, they got to learn on their own. If they're out there, I mean, you know, when they're really young puppies, especially with training runs and stuff and you're exercising dogs, they get to run with big dogs. So, again, it's kind of dependent on when they're born. So early in the year, they might get to run with one of the older dogs, which I've never been a full believer that, oh, my older dog's going to teach my younger dog. But there is an aspect where if the older dog runs into some birds, they get to smell it, they get that just bit of experience, but ultimately they still need to learn how to hunt and find birds on their own, which is where I think the aspect of hunting with a partner in their dog is a much better philosophy than hunting them with one of my older dogs because they get to understand and learn that they need to stay in our zone. They need to stay you know, focused on what our task is but they also get that socialization of other dogs and other things happening around them. You know, Nick, we tell the boys that when it comes time for the puck to drop, that uh, Coach Beans and I can't put on our gear. So it's up to them at that point. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty good analogy. It's, it's, it's up to them. They've got to figure it out on their own. Yeah, like Rick said, I think, you know, coming some summer runs, I'll pack run them. That'll give her some confidence to be out there searching to extend a range because I'd rather roll range in than try and push it out. And that's fine. But once the season starts or, or as we progress through summer, she's going to start to get more and more individual runs. And I do everything I can to just shut up, to not say a word, to let her figure it out. The most annoying thing that and, and look, Rick and I learned this from experience is when you hunt with somebody new and they're flushing dog and they're like, find the bird, find the bird, get a bird, get in there, get it, go here, go there. I'm yeah. like, dude, stop talking to your dog. It can't even, it can't even process scent because it's got someone yapping in its ear the whole time. Right. Just leave the dog alone. Give it the necessary commands when you need to. But other than that, leave that dog alone. Yeah. For the dog to have its head. I mean, that's if, if you don't have a situation like that, then you have to be probably more active and engaged than you want to be absolutely yeah. as much as you want as much as you want to work as a team the dog's got to be independent to itself yeah but at some point when they get older we got to make sure we come together at the bird as a team yeah and it doesn't always happen it, because they're wild birds absolutely you know and and that's why we chase wild birds it's not going to be perfect well that's that's a decent segue i want to i want to hit on this before we kind of wrap up but i Fritz, I know you have, and, and Rick, I'm sure you have as well, but you know, I know that you hold the rough grouse hunting in high regard, and obviously it's a product of opportunity. I mean, that's that's the wild bird opportunity that you have at your back door. You have gotten out and chased plenty of other birds. Is there anything else that you really like to do other than rough grouse hunting or 
When it's yeah. it's what's fascinating, Nick, is uh, you know Rick and I cut our teeth on pheasant hunting, and I used to think pheasants were the most fun. And there is something really magical about first light pheasant hunting, right? And and listening to birds cackle and the sheer size and power of them. But we left uh, Minnesota, what, three years ago, Rick, and drove out to North Dakota to hunt pheasants with Brad and Eddie. Eddie had never been out there. And after two days, once we figured out where those pheasants were living, Rick and I looked at each other and went, this is boring. (laughs) So about the only thing that gets me and Rick out of the grouse woods in October or November is uh, we do do some duck hunting. We do enjoy some duck hunting. And the great thing about duck hunting is you can go out duck hunting in the morning for two or three hours, go get breakfast, and then grouse hunt the rest of the day. But we will make some time if some fall steelhead start to creep up our, our Lake Michigan tributaries. Sure. And typically that time of the year, that's a, that's a daylight for a couple hours in the morning, too. And you can cast and, and blast that. In, in exactly. Every yeah. time we go down there, there's dogs and guns and gear in the back of the truck. Yeah. So... That that will get us out. In terms of birds, you know, I think the only thing to me that truly rivals the grouse would be coveys of bobwhites. Yeah. I mean, there's there's just it's just unique. It's it's you know, it, but I say that in the sense of I can also go chase them after our season's over. You know, right? And that that yep. it, it it alleviates some cabin fever if we've had an early winter to be able to you know go to Kansas and chase birds and you know our dogs aren't necessarily ideal with it but just in the aspect of you know kind of how those birds behave and then boy it's a rush when you get a good when you get a good covey going up in front of you yeah our season's not long enough in the Northwoods. i mean you guys know that and that's where i that's where i'm at too i it, it would be hard to pull me out of here in october but if there's a way to extend the season and get after some other stuff and i've i've come to really appreciate in the last two years the early season sharp tail hunting because that's you can go before rough grouse season opens but that's a nice place to be versus the the northwoods jungle at that time but yeah unfortunately we just our dogs aren't built for that right yeah yeah you know our, i'm our sure they could do it though they i'm sure they could too but you know we don't have the most heat tolerant dogs either yeah you know, we're pretty good at 70 degrees and below with low humidity, but if it's 58 degrees and super high humidity, we're going to struggle a little bit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I'm just a rough grouse snob these days, and some of it's that I don't have time to travel out west like I used to. That Those days should come back around at some point. Yeah. Yeah, you got hockey picking up when rough grouse right. season is tailing off. Yeah. You know, but just like anything, when you go to make those trips, too, you're you're trying to see where they're at and where their bird numbers are at. And you want to drive, you know, in January, our season's over. We haven't hunted for maybe a month because of the snow. Do you want to drive 17 hours to wherever and, you know, not have some decent hunting? You know, we, we used to go, I mean, I used to go every year to Kansas in January and it's been a few since I've, I've gone. I mean, the, the drought happened and bird numbers are starting to come back, but like Fritz said, you start to get busier and, life changes a little bit. So it's nice, you know, as you know, to be able to walk out the back door and hunt for a couple hours and, you know, still be involved with work, life, dad, husband, all that fun stuff. You bet. Just so the listeners know, you know, the back door might be an hour and a half from where we live. Yeah. We have some hunting opportunity close, but it's not like, you know, we have incredible hunting right around us. It's 
solid to to good depending on the year but we still gotta we still gotta make a drive i mean just like duluth you gotta drive out of duluth to find good bird honey yep but you know that's uh, that's life for everybody it's better than having to drive three hours right it is yep yep yeah so looking ahead at at this fall are are you guys planning to make the trip over to minnesota as it stands right now obviously who knows but as of right now, yeah, we intend to, to make a couple days in the Western UP and then a week in Minnesota. Okay. And, and that satisfies a lot of our wanderlust and helps support a great conservation organization at the same time. Yep. And quite frankly, you know, um, Minnesota is some of the great rough grouse hunting in, in the world. It's different type of habitat than we traditionally get to hunt around here. Yeah. Uh, it's not any easier or any harder it's just we get a we get a different kind of dog work there because of of the landscape the broader landscape of habitat and uh so i i am looking forward to that but uh, you know i gotta tell you nick by the time november 15th rolls around and our deer season opens i I typically am ready for a break and my dogs are typically ready for a break as hard as it is to believe that i i have the same mental cycle and attitude myself it right. it just it happens but usually that's a sign that you really got out there and got after it right and then anything we get in december i i, I could care less if i kill birds in december or not it's bonus. it's it's just bonus walks right it's just yeah. mental health walks it's it's getting the dogs out there and if we run across some birds that we can shoot then great if we don't then fine it's no. It's knowing that you don't get to do it for the next nine months. Nine months. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When we any any time you when that weather does hold out and the snow holds out, that later season hunts there. Yeah, they they could be a little bit slower paced and like the woodcock are gone. Not you know I know that's not you guys' primary focus, but it's just the woods are a calmer, yeah. quieter place. But right. it's still you and the grouse, which is cool. But just real quick from knowing what I know of the country over there and I think this is the main difference, but when you talk about the differences between Minnesota and where you traditionally hunt in Michigan, yeah, you have more sand over there in Minnesota. The Northern parts of Minnesota are very clay, heavy soil, a lot of swamps, a lot of alders. So, so you got that going for you guys, lots of hazel brush. What, what other differences do you notice or is, or is that kind of it? We don't have, I mean, you drive across us too, across Western UP, Wisconsin, Minnesota, it's one giant aspen flat. Yep. Where here, you know, we have a tributary almost every 35 miles on average going, going from uh, Chicago to, to the Mackinac Bridge. We have just tons and tons of water, which leads to just different types of tree species. You know, sure. we have lots of maple, lots of oak. And yes, we have pockets and areas of aspen. But we have a lot more pine. We don't have the spruce you have. Yep. Um, we have a lot more pine. We have we have plenty of alder. Our alder is different than what it is in the western UP in Minnesota. Really? Our alder can be a hundred yards wide, you know, where you can't even get through it. It's yeah, not yeah. like these beautiful little 10, 10 yard wide, twenty yard wide alder runs yep. pockets where the water is 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 uh, pooled up pooled up yeah. in the western up in minnesota so we just don't have the big giant aspen flats yeah nick you guys don't have the fruit that we have yeah. i mean that's that's no, a big not, portion not i mean we, we have yep. tons and tons of fruit and 
you know, and that's a result of the rivers. Yeah. That's a result of all the water, which yeah. to us creates objectives, right? You know, so I mean, you know, there's a learning curve everywhere. Everywhere you go, when we went to Minnesota for the first time, we're like, "What are these birds eating? We got to try and figure this out a little bit." Yeah. It's different than what it is back home. That was one of the biggest eye openers for me when I came over and hunted over there in Michigan with our buddy Jay Dowd. It, just the hawthorn orchards. I mean, literally orchards. He took us into a place where it was just hawthorn orchards, and the girls were. It was like magnets they were on there. And right. now I start to find a lot more. I find thorn apples and, and dogwood and stuff over here because I pay attention to it more. But yeah, it's it's definitely not do, the same as. Do you as find birds in it? <laughs> not like not like that. Because we found right? we found a beautiful spot. I remember a few years ago we get to Minnesota and it's this back hillside, and we get down there. I'm like, ah, Fritz. This, I mean, this is. Hawthorn, and there's a good amount of it, and the the, yeah. the the fruit was at the right point and everything, and I'm like, oh, we're just gonna, there's gonna be. It was on the back edge of this beautiful aspen cut, went down to a swamp. I was like, oh, we're gonna get into them good. We never pushed a bird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've had that same experience. I found a, a spot in northern Wisconsin last year where it was kind of mature forest, so that may have had something to do with it. But it was a there was a pretty good trail system in there. And the whole, entire trail system, I was there in late September, was just laced with dogwood and thorn apples. And it was like, well, if they like this stuff, I should be popping one up every five minutes or so. And I, I moved a handful of grouse, but it wasn't wasn't the same. And who we knows? Don't, we don't have trail systems here either in the northern lower. Yeah, you're, lo- Not much. you're lucky to find us. Our idea of a trail is an old skitter path. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, our yeah. idea of a trail. We have no, we have minimal trail, you know, cut systems like you guys do. Yeah. Do you think you have do you have less cutting than yeah. than what you see coming over no, here? No, I don't think we have less cutting. Okay. I think we probably have plenty of cutting, but the species are different. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're red pine cut, aspen it's different cut. Different rotations and everything. It, it, exactly. Yeah. We just don't have the pure aspen dominated forest that you have. Yeah. I mean, you go from I mean, I'll never forget our first time over there. You you driving out of Duluth, you know, towards going northwest. Fritz yep. and I are like, it is, it's all aspen. I mean, like, it's just a giant aspen flat. Yep. And then, then it took us a while to dial down, like, what age aspen do they really want to be in? Mm-hmm. Yep. And once we figured that out, we started to have a lot more success. The, the aspen we have success with in the western UP and in, and in Minnesota looks more like what we would call woodcock cover in the northern lower. The younger stuff. Yeah. Okay. And by younger, it's all relative, right? You guys might think of woodcock cover as even younger than that because sure. you find your grouse in this. Yep. But then you guys have some of that more mature stuff that's loaded with that hazel underbrush yes. that's starting to recover. Yep. So you walk in and you're like, it has all the stem density up to you know head high that you need. Yep. And there's birds in there too. We noticed we've noticed that a lot of people like to hunt that type of stuff, you know. Compared to what we look at is like Fritz said, what we look at back home is good habitat. We we don't have hazel brush here either. We have bracken fern and honeysuckle yep. and blackberry and raspberry and maple whips, which I hate. Yeah. And you know, that's our understory. Yeah, that hazel brush is that's a that's a, kind of a gold it can be a gold mine in and it's it's really thick in Minnesota and Jander and I always talks about how you know nobody's got hazel brush like northern Minnesota and some of the areas that I hunt and that's you find a nice mature canopy with a thick understory of hazel brush and 
maybe some swamps, alder edges around it. There's going to be grouse in there. Yeah, it's a dream. Yeah. All right, man. Well, that was that was a lot of fun, guys. We could we could definitely go on. I appreciate both of you taking the time to come on and talk to me on the Project Up podcast and the listeners, of course. This won't be the last time. It was great to catch up with you. Where can where can people follow along in some of your adventures, Rick? Uh, GrouseCommander.com is uh, that and our Facebook page. Uh, we've been a little bit lackadaisical with everything that's going on lately, but we'll we'll start getting some content rolling back up again. You know, that's kind of our way. Uh, we started a grouse commander in our way of to, to give back. Um, so we, yep. we support a lot of the RGS movement in uh, getting youths involved and uh, just trying to make sure that uh, we have a resource for our kids uh, to go out and do what we love, and hopefully they, they enjoy it and love it too. For sure. Fritz, any final thoughts? No, thanks for having us on. Uh, I think we're going to have a really good season just about everywhere across the Great Lakes grouse range. And I'm looking forward to it. And uh, wear your mask, I guess. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> you got Grouse Commander masks coming. That's yeah, not a bad idea. We'll have to talk, to, Ed, we'll have to, talk yeah. to Eddie about that. I'll take one of those. I'll send you some cash. <laughs> uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully our paths will cross here this fall, Nick, and we can uh, sit down and share a beer. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would like that a lot, guys. So we'll we'll keep in touch and wish you wish you both the best. Keep your stick on the ice, boys. Appreciate it. Yep. Good luck with. Have fun carpet cleaning. <laughs> uh i did it four times last <laughs> night fritz <laughs> all right thanks nick all right later Appreciate guys it. see you nick yep. all right bye all right that does it for this episode of the project up and podcast thank you for listening everybody a quick reminder that the podcast is brought to you by onyx hunt yukonuba premium performance dog food cz usa and dakota 283 kennels don't forget to leave us a rating leave us a review subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast for your chance to win the project upland podcast giveaway and head over to projectupland.com for more of the upland birds dogs guns and gear that you love until we see you back here for the next episode of the project upland podcast Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.